Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, which is the world's largest organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Jessica Davis, who has more than 20 years experience in defense and intelligence roles in government and the private sector in Canada. Jessica, currently the president of Insight Threat Intelligence, is the author of numerous books and articles on countering terror finance, including the comprehensive recently released Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. In this podcast, Jessica and I talk about the convoy of trucks that occupied Canada's capital, Ottawa, last winter in protest of COVID restrictions and how that occupation revealed shortcomings in Canada's anti-money laundering laws, particularly with regard to crowdfunding. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's a real pleasure for me today to be able to talk with Jessica Davis, someone with more than 20 years' experience in defense and intelligence roles in government and the private sector in Canada, and who is currently the president of Insight Threat Intelligence. Jessica, a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to be on, Kieran. I am hoping that you can shed some light and help folks out there to understand recent events in Canada. What I'm talking about is the whole convoy situation, the occupation of Ottawa. There were so many ramifications from that, crowdfunding and transparency of funding contributions. We're going to get to that. But what was the whole convoy occupation of Ottawa about? Well, you're in luck, Kieran, because there's probably nothing I like talking about more than this at the moment. It was one of the most interesting things that I've had a chance to experience and interesting, you know, being a euphemism for both disturbing and fascinating. It all started back in, I'd say, January 2022, so very early this year. There was a federal mandate that was put in place for truck drivers that they had to be vaccinated. So um, truck driving is a federally regulated industry in Canada. So the federal government said, okay, if you're a truck driver, you have to have two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to continue with your work. There was obviously, as with all vaccine mandates at this point, pushback on that requirement. And what started to galvanize around this was sort of a movement to support the truckers. So this is how it was originally pitched, this truckers convoy. And they planned to come to Ottawa to protest this vaccine mandate. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that the individuals who were involved in organizing this convoy, this was not their first convoy. There was a yellow vest convoy organized by some of these same people back in, I think it was 2019. And that had a different objective, which um, was a little bit more anti-immigration, sort of on the extreme right of the political spectrum in Canada. So anyways, this convoy, this freedom convoy, this anti-vaccine, this truckers convoy came to Ottawa on the 29th of January. And then it stayed in our downtown core for the next three or four weeks. And it caused intense amount of disruption. The downtown area where I I live was gridlocked. You couldn't drive a vehicle in a good 12 blocks of the downtown core. There were protesters on the streets. There was little things even like open flames because the protesters were cooking on the streets, which is, of course, against our bylaws and a health and safety issue. The truckers were honking their horns all day and night. There was intense pollution from the vehicles. So that really sets the scene and the atmosphere for the actual convoy and protest itself. So who were these people? I mean, 
Canadian Trucking Association, didn't they sort of say these aren't truckers? And who were they then? Yes, exactly. So the Canadian Truckers Association and a number of different trucking associations disavowed the protest itself. Um, some truckers were definitely involved. The whole thing was really organized, though, by a number of people. The, the most public-facing individual was Tamara Lich. She was formerly of the Wexit Party, so a Western separatist party. She had also been involved, of course, in the Yellow Vest protests um, and a whole bunch of what we consider to be fairly right-wing, fairly fringe activities here in Canada. There were other very publicly identified individuals as well, Benjamin Dichter, Chris Barber, Chris Gara, who are all either in front of the camera or behind the scenes helping with this. And of course, the very infamous Pat King, who was probably one of the most visible organizers of the convoy. His actual relationship with the convoy is still contested. The convoy organizers disavowed him as an organizer, but then, you know, we would see videos surfacing of him being directly involved in some of the organizational activities. Um, so it's still a bit of a mess in terms of understanding the exact um, command and control structures. There was also a number of former really federal officials who were involved, including a man by the name of Tom Quiggin, who was a former intelligence officer in the Canadian military and had held various other roles in the Canadian government, who provided, as he called it, intelligence support to the convoy. So that's a little bit of the cast of characters, and there are a few others as well. There was a constant portrayal of this, particularly in certain media circles, as a nonviolent protest. But there was some concern about violence or, or was it, in fact, a nonviolent protest? I think it really depends on what you think constitutes nonviolence. In terms of, you know, physical confrontations, those were fairly minimal. I think there were a, a few reports. There were some physical confrontations, of course, at one of our shelters here in Ottawa that was received quite a bit of publicity. It was a very unfortunate incident. But I think that characterizing a protest that really created an occupation in the downtown Ottawa core for weeks at a time as being nonviolent really glosses over what was happening. So citizens in downtown Ottawa were being kept awake for days at a time because of the honking. One of our biggest malls in the area was closed for the entire duration of the convoy, putting thousands of people out of work. The economic damage to the downtown core was estimated in millions of dollars. So while there may not have been you know, mass shootings or big riots, there were some very significant impacts that for Canada and for Ottawa in particular are really outside of the realm of what we consider to be acceptable protest. And there were arrests in Alberta of people trying to join the convoy or whatever who were armed, and it isn't clear what their connection was to the larger convoy movement who've now been charged with threatening violence against the RCMP. Is that right? That's correct. There were a number of other protests that took place across the country as well, primarily at border crossings, which of course resulted in the disruption of millions of dollars of lost trade. And one particular group that was arrested with connections to a known extremist organization in Canada, the Diagalon Movement, facing fairly serious charges at this point. So I, I guess that gets us to funding and everything. And I think it's fairly safe to say this was mostly unpopular in Canada, the convoy and the fallout, particularly after a few days. One of the things that became a real focus was how the convoy was funded. Can you talk a little bit about some of the sources for funding? I could talk about this all day, Kieran. It was <laughs> such an interest. <laughs> it was such an interesting thing to watch from somebody who does work on illicit financing. So the initial convoy, the initial movement was funded 
in part from a GoFundMe crowdfunding campaign. So before they even came to Ottawa, the organizers launched this crowdfunding campaign. And in the week leading up to their actual arrival, it was raising over a million dollars a day. It was really quite a significant event. The only other comparable fundraising campaign that we've seen in Canada was for a very bad bus accident tragedy that resulted in a number of people being killed. And that one raised quite a lot more. But this was, you know, a galvanizing event. That was a hockey team that was in a tragic accident, right? Yes, exactly. I think that the crowdfunding campaign itself helped to draw attention to the protest itself, the convoy and its arrival in in Canada. And it also was a bit of an outlet for individuals who were frustrated with vaccine mandates, the pandemic, all of these kinds of things. I think initially people were giving to this thinking, you know, maybe I can't go to Ottawa myself, but this is a great way for me to have my voice heard, to support these individuals who are going to protest. And I think it's also really important to note that, you know, when people were giving money to the the GoFundMe, the initial crowdfunding campaign, it was often before they arrived in Ottawa and before we saw some of the really worst elements of the hate symbols, the public disorder, the urination on the War Memorial, all of these kinds of really horrible things that actually took place in Ottawa at that time. Um, So that crowdfunding campaign raised about $10 million. Now, I think it's really important here to highlight the fact that most of that money never made it to the convoy organizers themselves. So when I think about the crowdfunding campaigns, I differentiate between the pledges made and the money actually dispersed. Of the money that was actually dispersed, there was a million dollars given to, dispersed to Tamara Litch, one of the main organizers of the convoy, by GoFundMe. GoFundMe then subsequently came under quite a bit of public pressure to close that crowdfunding campaign. There was a restraint order placed on the funds that had been dispersed to Merrill Litch. And the Ottawa police actually engaged with GoFundMe to explain the actual context around the protest itself. And so of that million dollars that was actually released, over 900000 of it, $964,000 remains frozen in an escrow account at this point. The other money, the $36,000, was apparently dispersed to bulk fuel suppliers and to reimburse some of the protesters for their expenses. So really just a very, very small proportion of that money made it to the protesters. There were subsequently other crowdfunding efforts that were created to sort of circumvent the GoFundMe's closure. Give, Send, Go, the Christian crowdfunding website, was used to create another crowdfunding campaign. And again, this one raised, you know, about $10 million again, um, even faster than the GoFundMe. I think there was a very clear backlash against the closure of the GoFundMe campaign. But this money never made it to the organizers, to the best of our knowledge. Again, there were restraint orders, there were court orders prohibiting the disbursement of that money. So instead, the actual operational on the ground funding of this protest came from a bunch of other sources, even though the crowdfunding campaigns got the bulk of the attention. They came from direct email money transfers. So in Canada, you can basically email people money for no cost, and people get it immediately. Um, So the organizers were circulating a number of email addresses where people could donate directly. There's a $3,000 daily limit on that for most accounts. So, you know, you can raise a a fair bit of money that way. There were also cryptocurrency crowdfunding campaigns that were established, one on a a site called TallyCoin. And the organizers also appear to have been receiving direct wallet-to-wallet cryptocurrency transfers. So the wallet-to-wallet transfers are interesting because they actually circumvent all of our cryptocurrency regulations here in Canada, meaning that they have no touch points with the regulated system, 
which is, of course, a concern. And there was a lot of cash. So if you went down and walked through the protest zone, you could see people with cash collection points. And there's really no way to know how much money was raised or dispersed in that manner. There's no amount of forensic accounting that's going to ever uncover the maybe hundreds, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars that were raised in that way. We just have no idea. It became a little bit of an issue that there was some foreign money, particularly people associated with certain causes in the U.S., I think was the largest. Uh, unclear. I mean, I know in the U.S., political donations are not permissible by foreigners. I don't know what the law is in Canada. and But obviously, that touched a nerve that this convoy protest that became unpopular was being funded by foreign sources. Yeah, the foreign portion of this became quite a hot-button issue. In terms of our laws in Canada, the only prohibition on donations to political causes is to political parties, so registered political parties in Canada. Otherwise, you can give money, you can get and receive, give and receive money from foreigners for all kinds of different causes. So that's completely illegal. Um, there was definitely some concern about potential foreign influence on this. Crowdfunding campaigns in particular, the growth of their popularity, I think, is best described as an inorganic growth. Um, it did seem to be driven by external forces, and we do have some evidence to suggest that there were at least some troll farms involved. Uh, we don't yet know why or by whom. And there were lots of donations from political folks in the United States. Notably, I think the former President Trump made a donation and lots of other individuals. But I think, again, it's really important to remember here that most of that money was never actually distributed to the protest. We don't know how much in terms of foreign donations came through the other crowdfunding mechanisms. There was at least one large cryptocurrency transaction that occurred from the United States uh, and probably a few others. But really, the, the foreign portion of this, I would estimate no more than about 20% of the money came from foreign sources. But it was absolutely a hot button issue in Canada. And then it seems to me that too, again, we, you, you said there's a little bit of a question about whether this was violent or not in the sense that there was intimidation and clearly uh, the occupation of Ottawa and the disruption of a lot of lives. And it, it was something that became unpopular. So, so I want to put that in perspective. But also, this seemed to raise alarms. And maybe you can go here because I know this is your wider topic about potential loopholes for future funding of clearly violent groups and terrorist groups. And again, separating, you know, some controversy over whether that or some, we, we can argue over the violence of this group, but it set off all those alarms. So the government's response to the convoy was a really interesting one. And just briefly for listeners, this was really spurred on by a certain level of inaction at three different levels of policing in, in Canada. So in Ottawa, we have the Ottawa Police Service, we also have the Ontario Provincial Police, and we have the RCMP, our Federal Police Service, all who have some element of jurisdiction here. The Ottawa Police were widely viewed to have done very little to stop the protest. Provincially, we were having some equally uh, slow-moving reactions. And so the federal government stepped in with the Emergencies Act to try to bring the convoy to a close. And with that convoy, there was a lot of financial measures that were involved. And, and we can talk about those in a minute. One of the ones that they put forward, though, was to address the issue of crowdfunding, because crowdfunding platforms are not a registered money service business in Canada. They're not required to register with our financial intelligence unit. And this was deemed to be a loophole. Now, some of us who are quite familiar with our regulations here were a little bit more reluctant to call it 
a loophole because there are other touch points in the crowdfunding sort of ecosystem with our regulated financial system. So for instance, when the money was distributed to Tamara Lich's bank account, that would have immediately triggered an electronic funds transfer from her bank to FinTrack, our financial intelligence unit. So there are already places where these transactions are being reported. My view is that the regulation of crowdfunding generally creates a duplication of reports in our system. Not a huge deal, we can deconflict that, but it's not the solution that we're looking for, particularly since most of that money wasn't actually even used to fund the protest. And so I think what ended up happening here is that a lot of attention was given to these crowdfunding campaigns, and we just ignored the other elements of fundraising, which have more in common with other forms of terrorist and extremist financing, like the self-financing of loan actor attacks, the low cost of terrorism, the ability of people to directly send money to each other um, in a way that's not ever going to really be captured by uh, our financial intelligence units. And we can have a long conversation about whether or not we need to change those, but positioning the crowdfunding regulation as solving this is really very inaccurate. Interesting. And just to be explicit, there are now some crowdfunding measures or crowdfunding is clearly under the MSB oversight of FinTrack or what. So maybe you could say something about specifically that just so that people understand exactly how it changed. But then maybe also you could say there's a few things that you kind of shied away from proposing things there, but are there suggestions that you have for the kinds of direct funding that happened? So in terms of the regulations now, now crowdfunding campaign platforms will be regulated under our anti-money laundering legislation, including cryptocurrency crowd fundraisers, which I would argue was the only real gap that existed in the system just because of the cryptocurrency space and the regulation there tends to be quite specific. So the cryptocurrency crowd fundraisers, which is a real mouthful to say, that was one place where there was a bit of a gap. Um, But now they will all be regulated under our anti-money laundering legislation that was made official in the budget that just came out a couple of weeks ago. And in terms of suggestions, I think There's one piece of this that I think we really need to explore because there was a lot of uproar around the use of some of these financial measures in the Emergencies Act. So the government brought into force the powers for the RCMP and other law enforcement agencies to freeze and seize the funds of individuals involved in the protest without a court order, which was a huge step in Canada. Like normally, this power exists, but it normally doesn't come into play unless you have you know, a, a developed law enforcement investigation or security service investigation and a warrant from a judge saying, yes, you can freeze these funds. In practice, these tremendous powers, but I really can't overstate how significant they were. The Emergencies Act uh, has been used once before this time? or No, it's never been used before this time. And these financial measures were brand new. We've never seen anything like this, but they were drawing on existing powers, basically removing the need for judicial oversight over the application of those powers, the ability to freeze people's accounts. So what happened in application of these powers was that the RCMP, our federal policing force, compiled a list of the main organizers, people who are believed to be really sustaining the movement, and provided those individual names to financial institutions and entities across Canada and directed them to freeze their accounts. So if you were a publicly associated individual with this convoy, your account was likely frozen. Now, the freeze stayed in place only for 
about a week for the on the outside for most of them. Some of the accounts remain frozen, from what I understand, because of existing law enforcement investigations. So that means that police have then gone to a judge and gotten a freezing order on the accounts based on their evidence. But it was really quite a tremendous use of power. And I think it's one of those things that it's very interesting to see that the government target people's finances in this way. You know, I would always argue that financial capabilities are the most important aspect of any kind of extremism or disruptive event. And if you if you target them, then you will reduce those capabilities. But doing so in this way, without a court order, without judicial oversight, I think really might have backfired on the government in terms of the applications of these powers. And it might shape our discussion of really counterterrorism and counter-extremist financing for many years to come. That, I think, is a huge note to perhaps end on. And, and I'm going to ask you if there's anything that we haven't covered or any uh, things that you particularly take away from the whole uh, convoy situation, the Emergencies Act. But I guess you're saying there's a debate ahead in Canada about how to seize illicit funds, that particularly those connected to terror or violent political movements. I think there's a huge debate that we're about to embark on in Canada relating to the convoy, relating to the application of these emergency measures, and also relating to sanctions evasion and our ability to enforce that. You know, I think we're long overdue for a really solid look at our ability to combat financial crime in Canada. The only other things that I want to bring up in terms of the application of the emergency measures to target the convoy finances is really the idea that we were using our anti-money laundering laws to do that. And it's actually a really nuanced point that the reason why a lot of these emergency measures came into force was because our banks couldn't use those measures, the, our anti-money laundering laws, to report any of this activity, uh, because it really wasn't money laundering and it really wasn't terrorist financing. So it really fell outside the scope of that. So what the government then did is that it used existing sort of frameworks for for freezing funds to go after that money. And I think this is important just because it's not really the misapplication of anti-money laundering laws in Canada. It, if there was a misapplication, it was really more on the information sharing and the lack of judicial oversight of the application of these measures. And my view is still that we're in the fact-finding phase of whether or not this was justified or useful. And I think those two questions should shape our discussion around this, because I think that the government has come out very often and said, several times and said, these measures were very effective, they were very important to ending the convoy, but they've actually presented no evidence to support that assertion, which I think is a very interesting place to start our public inquiry, which should be announced within the next four or five days. Well, you frame this debate well, Jessica, as always. We'll leave it there and we're going to be watching as this debate unfolds in Canada. Jessica Davis, president of Insight Threat Intelligence and author of numerous books, including, if I can pitch your latest book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century, which I thought was a great book. Thank you for being here, Jessica. Thanks so much, Karen. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jessica Davis, president, Insight Threat Intelligence, and author of Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.